please pray with me the prayer of illumination? Our Father God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our first scripture reading this morning is Psalm 15. And if you want to follow along in your uh, pew Bible, it's uh, on page 495. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Those who walk blamelessly and do what is right and speak the truth from their heart, who do not slander with their tongue and do no evil to their friends, nor take up a reproach against their neighbors, in whose eyes the wicked are despised, but who honor those who fear the Lord, who stand by their oath even to their hurt, who do not lend money at interest and do not take a bribe against the innocent. Those who do these things shall never be moved. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Faye. And now we continue on as we, we are in a series of uh, readings from the book of James. We started that last week, this book of New Testament wisdom and uh, insight as to what it means to live the faith in a modern context. We hear today from James chapter 1, verses 17 through 27. You can find that printed in your pew Bible as well on page 229 in the New Testament section. Every generous act of giving, with every perfect gift, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would become the kind of first fruits of his creatures. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in the mirror, for they look at themselves and going away immediately forget what they are like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseverance, being not hearers who forget but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. 
Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Let us pray. Lord, may we be not only hearers of your word this morning, but doers. May we integrate those two pieces of our journey with you, where we take what you teach us and we put it into practice in our world on behalf of all who are in need, all who are hurting, all who are lonely, and all who seek refuge in you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever, Lord. Amen. So many of you may know that I began my career in ministry by spending time caring for college students at Western Washington University through a ministry called The Inn. The Inn was a gathering and a service ministry for students that connected them with each other during their college journey, forming small groups, studying scripture, serving in the city and abroad, and in growing together they grew in their faith and formed in the love of God with them. Our staff would often sit together at the beginning or before the beginning of a quarter and consider what kind of teaching students might need at this chapter of their life. We would map the whole quarter out, put a theme together, and build our worship times around that focus. One fall, we chose to start the year and frame our teaching around this passage, specifically verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, this was a significant time of transition in campus ministry, and this passage put it into focus. Now, at that point, many students were gravitating towards a more fundamentalist and rigid expression of religion. Back in the late 2000s, there was what we would call a neo-Calvinist movement in full swing. Mars Hill Church in downtown Seattle is a good example of such a, commu a community, with its charismatic and power-hungry leader, Mark Driscoll. And it was at its height of its popularity. Students were drawn to this very black and white version of religion. Driscoll's version of Christianity was foul-mouthed and stark. There were clear winners and losers in his brand of faith. Power, position, traditional gender roles, and unwavering clean-cut answers to the questions that scriptures raise were brought each Sunday. You could say it was its own brand of old-time religion. And we were struggling with students who embraced this kind of theology and religious action. And then they became quite antagonistic to churches that did not toe the same line. So approaching students with this text of what is pure and undefiled was a bit provocative, pushing them to wrestle with a purity that looked very different than having all the right answers. This kind of religion was pure because it focused on the poor, the disenfranchised, the hurting, 
Orphans and widows in their distress don't have much time for power-hungry theologians or black-and-white answers that ignore their plight. To approach students with this kind of teaching was to push them towards a faith lived out in practice. It is all well and good to believe these things, but when we do not take them into active engagement with the hurting and those in need, then do they really matter, friends? One of the most important gleanings that I take from this text in James, and much of the wisdom that he offers, is that healthy faith, pure and undefiled religion, must find a point of integration. It must be able to take the head and the heart and put them together. To take contemplation and action and make them partners, not separate streams of a living faith. What is also provocative about this text in the context of right and wrong religion and the complexities of engaging the world is that it pushes us to ask more questions. Who are the orphaned? Who are the widowed? Where do we see them pushed out by our world, left behind and lacking support? Now, maybe you don't know many people who are actually orphaned in the strict definition. But what about the man who's just been laid off from his job that he's held for decades? Is he not orphaned? Or what about the wife whose husband didn't die, but instead he left her for someone new? Is this first wife not widowed in a sense? I want us to take a moment, actually, together, you all here in person and those of you online, to turn and talk to each other about some of these questions. So before, I, before you do, let me, fra let me frame this for us. First, I want you to talk about who in our culture is orphaned. Who's orphaned? For those of you who are online, I invite you to start sharing in the chat on whatever platform you're using. What are your ideas? Who do you see in the world that is orphaned? Share some ideas with each other as a discussion. And for those of you here, I want to invite you to turn and talk to one or two neighbors about who you see and know that is orphaned. Think broadly about that category. I'll give you a couple minutes to do that, and then we're going to shift over to the widowed question. So turn and talk with one another. Who do you see that is orphaned in your world?
Okay, I'm sure you come up with some great examples that go beyond the traditional definition of simply an orphan. So now I want to, uh, you don't need to go back to places yet, but stay with whoever you've been. And who do you know, or how do you know the, uh, the concept of a widow in our culture? What is it? Obviously, we know widows and widowers, people who have lost their partners. But I wonder if there's more to it that we can see in the call for justice and work in our world. So talk about that. Who is widowed? What types of people, what places do you see that? Turn and talk with one another. All right, we'll bring it back together. Um, and just to keep the conversation flowing a little bit, um, was there any, any, would anyone like to call out any specific contexts or ideas that really struck them? I'll share it out so that folks at home could hear, but was there anything that really um, sticks out to anyone that they'd like to share? Yes, people left in Afghanistan who can't get out. Uh, there's, there's some complexity to that as well. It's a, an orphaning of the people of the country from the, like, by the leaders and the culture there, but also then a, a kind of a cutting off and a dying of, of a way of life. Yeah, for sure. What else? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so t uh, students in schools, uh, actually Luke just mentioned that as well, that 
like students who would come to Western and be in the dorms but really have no connections with other people because of the isolation and the quarantining. But then you start to think about elementary age and, 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 and older and just the sort of dynamic of only having maybe one or two points of contact during the year who could help nurture and grow with them. Yeah, for sure. Yes. Yeah, people who are in independent living who need support, but often, especially in this last year, it's been very difficult to come around them and care for them. Yeah, for sure. Any others? Tricia. Yeah. Yeah, orphaning people because of their sexual orientation or gender identity, like that families would push them out and in a sense, we, actually we talked about that too, that orphaning not in the sense of death, but orphaning in the sense of estrangement um, that can be caused. Yeah. I also commented to Luke that it's very interesting to look at this concept of widowing in a context where I know that so many of you have lost your partners over your life and and are, you know, widowed in the very practical definition of the sense of the definition. And what does it mean to hold that and be in community with people who can love you and come around you and be that family and yet also still feel that great loss? Lord, have mercy. Thank you for sharing. Thanks for engaging in this. You know, sadly, uh, the church can often be a place where orphans and widows are not received. It's easier to expect someone's struggles to be dealt with elsewhere. Please take that to therapy, or please talk to your family about that. We grow uncomfortable with uh, perhaps a woman who's grieving, who's lost her partner too soon. Our public spaces, especially churches, are, we want them to be places where we're uplifted and we feel joy not spaces where sorrow or lament happen. And that's unfortunate. The orphan, as well, who walks in off the street can be hard to receive. We're quick to wonder why they are without a home, where their family is, who's responsible for them. What brought them to our doorstep, to this orphaning and this abandonment and this distress? We are often quick to judge and wonder at the story behind the story, but seldom quick to listen and explore their trauma and potential for recovery. Think of this within the context of the immense refugee resettlements that are going on all around the world. We've heard mention of Afghanistan as one example. We're quick to look at people's uh, plight and displacement which it's certainly important for us to look at the systemic issues like genocide or unsafe nation states. But in looking at the causes of these geopolitical issues, do we ignore the simple, plain struggle of a person who has nowhere to go? Do we seek abstract answers and political solutions, yet neglect the hunger and insecurity that these individuals and families feel. When James talks about not being only hearers, but doers of the word, he's inviting us to this more complicated place, to be learned in the law, 
aware of the social and political contexts of our day, but also to place deep compassion and connection to the individuals as a high priority. James makes us uncomfortable because he's always pushing us to integrate head and heart, orthopraxis with orthodoxy, right belief and right practice. Theologian Leonardo Boff, who I love to quote, says that all theology, all of our thinking about God, is preceded by doxology, our sending out by God to be in and engaged with the world. We have to integrate these things. We cannot simply say we care for the orphans and the widows by doing uh, the work of, of speaking about it, but we actually have to integrate by being with and caring for them in person, with, in our body. That is what a healthy, pure, and undefiled religion can look like. I want to close with reflecting on a couple of more quick passages in this, in this section of James. First, verse 26, which speaks of unbridled tongues and deceived hearts that come from worthless religion. I want to go back to that whole new reformed neo-Calvinist movement for a moment. I'm cautious to be overly critical of a stream of another church and a way of living out their faith. I will confess that. However, that movement has become a good example of the unbridled and deceived religion that James is speaking of. One of the main characteristics of this movement was and is a sense of unquestioned certainty in our convictions. Folks like Mark Driscoll believe that they have it all right and have all the answers, and they're happy to tell you about the ways that you are wrong. In my experience, when folks have gotten wrapped up in this kind of rigid religion, there's very little space for questioning, for discourse, and for a more nuanced understanding of the faith that engages the complexities of our world. Doctrine and right belief trump discourse and learning. Last week I said that the opposite of faith isn't doubt, excuse me, that the opposite of doubt isn't faith, but it's certainty. Certainty presents a great deal of struggle in the sense that it has no space for particularity, for context, and for varied expressions of understanding. In turn, this is where faith comes in. Faith is able to stand in the gray areas, to be able to say both and, to be able to stand in tension between having no answers and having all the answers. Faith is the middle way, the more excellent way. Faith requires us to hold our doubts with our certainties. In the face of worthless religion, faith actually leads us to figure out what it means to believe things and put them into practice. The and is so important. Like James remarks in verses 23 and 24, if we merely look in the mirror and say we believe something and then turn away and live or act like we forget that belief when we try to put it into practice, is it worth anything other than narcissistic self-indulgence? 
Does the mirror just show us what we want to see and not actually challenge us to see others who are in need? Well, then perhaps it's worthless. The way that I've discovered, at least for me and the people that I get to serve and spend life with, is that I need integration. I need belief and action to work together. I need contemplation and solitude to then lead me to engagement and work alongside you all. Perhaps this is what James is getting at when, it cl when he closes this section by encouraging his hearers to keep themselves unstained by the world. Perhaps there is a staining that takes place when we focus too strongly on belief or action to the exclusion of one or the other. Perhaps we become sullied when we become so heavenly-minded that we are no earthly good. Rather, what we are being invited to here is to put both sides of the equation together. Doubt with certainty. Belief with action. Liberty with justice. And doing it in a fully integrated, faithful way. Now, this might sound complicated, but gratefully it's not. James makes it quite clear, echoing Jesus' teachings, to simply go be with the poor, to love our neighbors, to pray for our enemies. The work is right in front of us. We're formed in belief so that we may live belief out in action, unstained, a finding of a pure religious way, that doesn't turn the blind eye to the widows or the orphan, but actually integrates our lives with theirs, coming close in love and compassionate community with each other. May we be this kind of community, my friends. Let us pray. O oh Lord, may our religion be pure and undefiled in the sense that it calls us deeper into connection with you and others in those complex places in the world. May our faith be put into action, one with the other, that we be formed in your way and we be led out as a people to go and do likewise. Lord, we lift up the orphaned, the widowed, those who are hurting, those who are lonely, those who are in need, those who are here in this very place who are feeling those things, and those out in the world who are lost and longing for someone to come and be with them, care for them, help along the way. Lord, may we be your people who go out and do that. We do this only through Christ, our Lord, who empowers us, strengthens us, and sends us. So Christ, go with us. Amen.